This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Thank you again to HMH Vices for making this episode possible. Since 1975, HMH has been giving tires dependable service and quality. Made in Maine, USA, all HMH Vices and tools are guaranteed for life. The HMH Vice has an ultra-smooth 360-degree rotary action and an exclusive quick-change jaw feature that allows you to tie from size 32 to 6 aught. In 1992, HMH was instrumental in popularizing tube flies with their tube fly tool. This tool fits into any vise, making it easy for tires to tie on tubes with only a minimal investment. HMH offers a complete selection of fly tying tubes, including aluminum, copper, poly, and rigid tubes for any species, water depth, or temperature. Their tube converter tool converts an HMH vise into an incredible inline rotary tube vise. With a vise for all budgets and tying needs, you're bound to find something for you at www.hmhvices.com. Ed Rice was meant to be in show business. From television to trade shows, he founded the International Sportsman's Expo in 1975 and ran it for 23 years. The show was the first of its kind and was responsible for the collaboration and networking of some of our sport's most dynamic industry leaders. Ed also holds a handful of IGFA records and has traveled the world several times over in pursuit of fisheries less known. In this episode of Anchored, Ed shares some of his most intimate memories and gives us a glimpse into the life of the man behind the scenes. What do you want to know, April? Everything. (laughs) What did you eat for breakfast? Not not everything, (laughs) trust me. Um, I want to start with your, I just want to know your story and how you'd like your story to be remembered, really. Let's start with 
very simply, where you were born and raised. I was born in Chico, California in 1939, July 31st. I was raised by my grandmother and grandfather who were in their late 60s when they took me in. I was like, I think, six weeks old, and my grandfather was an outstanding outdoorsman. He hunted and fished, and he was my mentor. He was there all the time for me. He uh, was a caretaker for a Pacific Gas and Electric Lake called Lake de Sabla outside of Chico. And uh, a lot of trout, rainbows and browns. And I started fishing when I was about three years old. I think I caught my first fish when I was three from my grandfather. And uh, I was in a situation where I was never around kids, you know, little kids. Mm -hmm. All my grandfather's friends were very old. My grandmother's friends were very, very old. So that's who I grew up with. And so I became very mature at a very early age. My grandfather taught me everything at that time about fishing and hunting. I killed my first deer, which is a four-point blacktail, when I was nine years old. And then I was 10 years old, I wounded my first deer, and I was never so sick in my life. I used a rifle that I didn't sight in, I thought the sights would be okay, and anyway, it wasn't a real bad wound, it just clipped the sight of a deer, but I lost it, it was only 50 yards away. And I couldn't even hit a target at 50 yards with that rifle. So I never, ever hunted again without sighting in my rifle, making absolutely sure I knew where it was at. But with my grandfather, he was a caretaker, like I say, and we, so I got a chance all summer to fish. And I was rowing a boat when I was five and six years old. They had a raft out in the middle of lake, this lake in yeah. Sabla, and I would row people out for 25 cents. <laughs> to the floating dock, and yeah. you know, they swim and fish and stuff like that. If they didn't pay me, I wouldn't go get them again. <laughs> and uh, I just was very mature for my age, I think. And uh, then in the winter, my grandfather lived about oh, a couple of hundred yards from what they call Big Chico Creek, which was a swimming pool and a creek that had a good salmon run, lots of pike, which Sacramento River pike, and smallmouth bass things like that. And the Sacramento River was only eight miles away. Most of the time I'd go over and catch these pike and carp and different things out of Big Chico Creek and then I'd figure out how to catch salmon out of there. And uh, it was funny, as a little kid I'd be dragging home a 30 pound king salmon and people look at me and I was half out of my mind. But I learned then that, you know, if you play baseball or little league or something like that and you hit a home run, all the guys, all the adults will say, oh good job, pat you in the head and say, hey that's great. But you catch a a big fish or shoot a big buck, it's a whole different sense of how they treat you. How did it's they a, treat you? Oh, they, you know, with, hey, where'd you get that? How, what'd you use for bait? <laughs> yeah. you know, do you do this often? You know, that kind of stuff. So the praise you'd get was totally different. It was like an adult to an adult. Mm-hmm. And I realized then and there, hey, this, I like this. Aww. You know, I like the respect of older people. So it was great. Before you and, move ahead, I do have to back you up to ask you a question. Sure. Why did your grandparents raise you? Were your parents not around? April, that's a place I don't really want to go. That's okay. We don't have to go there. I just say I was abandoned. That would be the best thing. My mother was married eight times, had five kids, and one didn't raise a single one of them, just let somebody else raise them. My father was a psychopath, a mean, vicious, drunk, alcoholic. and. Uh, but your grandparents were loving... Yep, my grandfather was, but my grandmother looked at me. She saw my father every time. Okay. So I had, a, and she was stone deaf. Have you ever tried to defend yourself with a deaf person? <laughs> I think, I, well, not not, not, liter- not literally deaf. No, she <laughs> was totally deaf. Yeah. Couldn't hear anything. 
Later on in life, though, after she found out that I wasn't going to be like my father and I became a success, she was still alive then. And I was in television and did real well there. And then I started my own company, and she knew about it. In fact, I had a show going when she passed. I couldn't get to her, but uh, we made our peace then. Okay. And it was quite a ride. Tell me about your grandpa. Did he still my, work while he was raising you? Nope. He uh, was, a, like I say, he was a caretaker for PG&E Resort in DeSabla. The rest of the time, he didn't do anything. He you know, was totally retired. He was 70 years old, you know, 68 when he took me in. So you guys really did have time to get out there and spend oh, all of this quality time outside. No kidding. Duck hunting, pheasant hunting, everything he did, he took me. Deer hunting, he'd always take me. I, he was my fishing and hunting buddy. And sounds like it. Did you go to high school? I went my freshman year and I quit. Okay, why? Well, because uh, if something happened to my grandmother and grandfather, I didn't have any place to go. Mm-hmm. I would have been put in an orphanage or something like that, and I just couldn't deal with that. So I figured I, I have to be able to survive, so I went to work at 13. I worked for a rug cleaner. I bought my first car when I was 13, 1939 Dodge. <laughs> and so then I, the whole world opened up for me for fishing and hunting. I could go wherever I wanted to. And so if I asked you when you were 14 years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you have told me? The same thing that I told some of my kid or my friends in high school. I want to be an entrepreneur. That's what I said. Okay. And they still remind <laughs> me that some of my old friends. Uh, they're still alive, you know, a few of them. And they always remember that. They always said, you know, he was going to be an entrepreneur. Why? What about that was so exciting to you? To, uh, I think, probably make my own course in life. Mm-hmm financially be able to do things I wanted to didn't want people to tell me how to do something what to do what that sort of thing I still have that you know I just don't like people telling me I have to do this I have to do that it's my decision not theirs so how many years did you work for somebody else until I was uh, 30 35 okay then I started my ISE okay what what kind of jobs did you do before ISE which of course I'm excited to talk about well, I had an underwater salvage company, uh, aqua, Aqualons, and I'd clean out grizzlies, log ponds, things like that. Then uh, I was a skydiver. I used to dive at fairs and stuff like that. I, I showed John some of the pictures. John told me that you're quite the adrenaline junkie. I was, big time. <laughs> yeah, I was. It, uh, But I had enough sense and enough confidence in my abilities and uh, not to panic or whatever it might be. And I just, I just like the feeling of, uh, I guess, fear, being able to challenge it. I remember the first time I made a parachute jump. If you told me that I was going to make a parachute jump that day, I'd tell you, you're out of your mind. And it was funny. I was taking out this beautiful Czechoslovakian girl, beautiful blonde, I mean, gorgeous. And we went out to watch these guys jump, some of my friends. And... Uh, she was just awed by it. Whoa, look at that. And I said, and I thought, whoa, I'll, I'll impress her. So <laughs> I walked to one of my buddies and said, hey, can I try that? No. And they said, sure, Ed. I said, wait a minute, don't I have to go like six months training and all this kind of stuff? And they said, Ed, everything you need to know, I can show you in five minutes. The rest of it is just to overcome fear. And uh, I've always felt, well, you know, I can challenge my fear, but I'm, I always try something at least twice just to find out if I can do it. I'm not stupid. I'm not going to kill myself. I started thinking about the odds, and they were my favorite. I said, heck, I, you know, I'd never been up an airplane, let alone jump out of one. So they had a 182 Cessna with the door off. So we went up, and I did the first one was a static line where the, my ripcord is attached on a long kind of a, 
a cord, and as soon as I leave the airplane, it pulls the rip cord, and so it's automatic open as long as it opens. And they tell you, you know, if it doesn't open, what to what what to do. I only had a couple scary jumps in my life. That was all. The rest of them was just, I was really comfortable with. How many jumps do you think you made? I had it well over a hundred, and I got paid for ninety-two. You got paid for it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You go to a ball game or something like that, or a fair. And they're always looking for attractions. And skydiving in those days was something, you know. I jumped out of a helicopter one time, and it does, and that's the, <laughs> the spookiest jumps I've ever had. Because you know, with an airplane, you're going usually about 80 to 90 miles an hour when you say cut. That means they put the, they just shut it down, the nose drops a little bit, the front end, so you're not going to hit the tail when you leave. And you just step out, step on the strut, and... Uh, with a helicopter, you're stopped, so you have, don't have any velocity buildup. So usually, I'm a big guy, and I get stable just you know within four or five seconds. It takes about 10 seconds to get terminal velocity, which is about 120 miles an hour. So you want to get that so we really got a lot of air coming against you, and then you can start tracking. That means you, I could go about 100 feet for every 1,000 feet I dropped. I could go sideways or backwards mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. I was just thinking this. When I left the air the helicopter, it was a glass bubble. You know, you kind of have to go up the side of it, and you got the struts, and you got to make sure you go between the helicopter and the struts. And I did, and I went down. And usually, like I say, I'm usually get stable right away. Anyway, I did this big slow roll, and then I did another roll. I said, "What in the world's going on here? Why? What's happening?" But it took about eight or nine seconds for me to get stable. But it was kind of spooky there for a while. I never had that feeling where I couldn't, you know, get stable right away. That's terrifying. No, it's not terrifying. You just got to know what you're doing. Not, not, you know, try to figure out in your mind what's happening. I was going to mention, you are a big guy. I was actually very surprised meeting you how tall you are. How tall are I you? Used to, I'm about 6'1 now. I used to be 6'3 and a half in my stocking feet. No kidding. But age takes you down, way down. Everything shrinks. Yeah. Okay, now am I allowed to ask how old you are? Or is that I'm rude? 80. I, I'm sorry, 79. I'll be 79 in a month. Okay. July 31st. Let's talk a little bit about where your career starts to come into play. Were there any other jobs that you had? Oh, yeah. Let's see. <laughs> I worked uh, construction. I picked prunes. I picked hoed sugar beets, anything I could make money doing. Right. Worked for a nursery. Then I went, I got, when I got started getting married my first time, I had a job opportunity with, in Japan with a company that was a salvage company. In those days, when you left, if a ship was in trouble and you left the ship, then it's open for anybody to get. And so this friend of mine and I, both skydivers, both serious aqualung divers, and uh, all we had to do was dive or get on the ship or swim to it or whatever it might be, and then it claimed it for the salvage rights. And so this friend of mine and I were going, and my wife told me, uh, I was starting to get married, and she, this girlfriend of mine said, well, you're going to have a little one. And uh, so anyway, I, I decided I'm not going to let any child of mine grow up like I did. Right. I'm just not going to do it. So we got married. And uh, then I, I didn't want to work you know, construction. I wanted to work with my brain, not my hands. Mm-hmm. And uh, getting married, taking care of a kid and all that. So I went to work for an appliance company. I got a telephone book out. And I, I was looking for something I had to sell. I knew that you know I could talk pretty well and people seemed to like me. So I thought, well, I'll be a salesman because I don't need a formal education to do this. So I got a phone book out. And the first thing I hit that was you know where you could sell would be appliances. And uh, the first one was AAA appliance or something like that. 
they were closed, and uh, then there was Beggars Plumbing and Heating. So I went to work for them, and they had a big warehouse that they stored everything in. I want to know everything I, I can about something. The same thing with fishing, honey. I want to read everything I know, can find out about it, the history of it and all that. So there was trade magazines in the appliance business, so I'd grab those and read everything. And there was a company had the first discount appliance store. It was somewhere back east. And I thought, hmm. I thought, you know, I could take that warehouse and turn it in because uh, I became sales manager of the place in six months. And uh, I was 20 years old. And so I took this uh, warehouse over and cleaned it up, did the books in the morning, cleaned the place, and sell all day, and then deliver at night. I mean, I did it all. And uh, it took off, and I was buying television, because television really worked. And I was always fascinated by advertising, publicity, things like that. And uh, I was buying television time at 20 years old. It seemed like I had a flair for it. I was buying the right stuff, and... It was really working, the appliance store was really doing good. And the guy that I was buying television time from cheated me, sold me a package and didn't deliver, and I caught him. And I called the station, and he was on vacation, I think, happening to somewhere. He drove a Cadillac convertible, of all things. You know, it was a high roller. And I thought, wow, this guy's something in television. And that was, you know, when television first started, it was baby for color and film change and things like that. It was just... You know, most everything live with a live camera. So uh, the sales manager came out. Uh, his name was Woody Woodling. And uh, talked to me and he said, we're going to run make goods for you. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You know, I said, I don't want, ever want that guy in the store again. You know, here I'm telling the sales manager, I don't want to deal with this guy. And uh, I said, and just when he left, I said, by the way, if you ever have an opening at Cage's Hell in Sales, I'd really like to give it a go. I think I'd do very well. He kind of looked at me funny and laughed. A week later, they fired this guy, and they got his job. But I didn't get all of his accounts, and they didn't know what to think of me. I was so young. And then one day, I'm in the office. The news department was, had their own space right next door to me, and I, could, I knew some of the news gals. And uh, I heard this thing about this guy got shot up, up by Sabla, and my stepmother had killed my father, shot him, and, uh, and I had to leave. Oh, my God, Ed. Oh, well, that's part of life. He deserved it. And uh, so anyway, they talked about it, and they were saying this guy named Alan Rice was shot up, and, and that's my father. So I, oh, Jesus. So I said, i got to leave, and then, then they knew who it was. So I left and went up there. And from that time on, Cage's TV, TV was not friends with me. They did everything they could to get me to leave. And they finally went too far, and I quit. But then the next day, I got calls from the Reading, Bill Smullen, Klamath Fall, Coos Bay. I mean, he had a bunch of stations. And they offered me a job. And I also got a job offer in Sacramento, McClatchy, which I should have went there. But if I had nothing like this would ever happen, I'd probably still been there. And then I got another job offer in New York with Adam Young, which is station reps. The guy that uh, offered me the job and wanted me to come back was the husband of Mary Tyler Moore. And I visualized New York in shades of gray. I didn't see any green. I didn't see animals. I didn't see fishing, any of that. Just concrete canyons. And I was an outdoorsman. I, I just couldn't leave. So I went to Medford, and here's Oregon, you know, a lot of hunting and fishing. And I had a good opportunity. I said, I want to be a sales manager. And he said, we'll see. So anyway, I became sales manager. I also took, I became top salesman right away. I'm making more money than anybody, even the general manager, 
chief engineer, I was making more than it, and they, you couldn't have that. I didn't realize it then. I do now, but then they can't have that. You can't do that with a company. So um, it got to a situation where I don't want to do this. I know, you know, I, these people are being treating me wrong. So uh, I decided to go hunting and fishing for a while, and then I tried to buy a television station in Eureka, and that was when Lyndon Johnson, you know, when he had all the stations, and they put a FCC put a freeze on all broadcast licenses, so I couldn't get a license transfer. And the guy that owned the station was a very wealthy guy, and I said, you're going to have to wait just a little bit until they started proving licenses. And he says, no, I'm not going to sell it now. And I said, what do you mean? You made a promise to me. And he says, well, that's life. I said, okay, that's life, and I left. And I went to Reading, another one of the stations owned by the Bill Smullen, who I work for in Renford. And uh, so that was about it. But it was it gave me a chance for, to exercise my creativity and the things that I wanted to do. I really enjoyed it. I really did. And you were hunting and fishing all through this? Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. Did, had you had a second baby at that point? Yep. I had two, two young sons. Okay. And uh, I thought, boy, here we go. I'm going to teach my kids to hunt and fish and all that. And they became athletes instead. I was very athletic as a young man. And uh, my oldest son, who I lost, uh, he broke Danny Ainge's record at North Eugene High School. He was all state as a junior. Oh. State the scoring champion as a junior. He got recruited by Notre Dame, Indiana. And then he messed up his shoulder. And that was it. No more, no more uh, recruiting. Mm-hmm. And it broke his heart. He established everything when he was a junior in high school, a point of, the highest point of his career. The only place left is going down. And he couldn't deal with it. Right. Got involved in drugs and stuff like that. And finally took his own life after he got married and had a couple of kids. Oh, I'm sorry. They killed me. But uh, Let's go back to the fond days. Let's talk a little bit more about where your career goes in the 60s. Well, it uh, stayed in television. I stayed in television all the way through. I went to work. And then uh, I got offered a job in Eugene Television. And I was doing all these special events, you know, citywide events. I remember I put together Pioneer Days in Eugene. I had firearms inside of a bank, the world's largest Winchester collection. I had big game animals. I had birds. I had you name it. I had it. Every store that was involved had some special thing. These things motivated me to produce these strange events. Yeah. And I started thinking about a sportsman show. The thing about it is I wanted to see all these guys I've been reading about. I was an avid reader, you know, I knew all the like Joe Brooks, Jason Lucas, all these guys that were heroes. They were writers. So uh, I I want to go to some where I can see these guys, see these pros. So I went down to San Francisco, the San Francisco Boat and Sportsman Show, and what a joke they had you know, there may be a dozen outdoor exhibitors, some guides and outfitters, but nothing like I wanted to see. Then I went from there down to Anaheim to the Warner Buck Show, which was supposed to be big, and they didn't have anything. They just had maybe two two fishing tackle companies. And I thought, hmm, I can do this. So I decided to do the Eugene Boat and Sportsman Show for the television station. And I got Lefty Cray, Ernie Schwebert, I mean, some of these greatest guys in the world fishing and hunting, you so know, well-known. You're putting on a show for the station? Yeah. Okay. How did that work? What was their, why did they okay that? Because it gave them a 13-month in profit. That's so they what. took, they profited from attendees, from yeah. vendors? Yeah, the same thing that I did. Advertising. But uh, they tried to take the show, and I said, no, that's my show. So I left, and I, that's when I started ISC. 
and boy, I mean, I was traveling eight months a year, talking to every rep, every manufacturer, developed all these different programs, went computerized before anybody else in the industry, and uh, it took off. It was really tough, but I got it. All right, let's dive into the ISE. What is the ISE for people who have never heard of it? International Sportsman's Expositions. It's, uh, we had exhibitors from all over the world, actually. We had Australia, Japan, Europe, Norway. Just uh, brought the east to the west and west to the east. Mm-hmm. That was the idea of it, to bring the very best speakers, the most knowledgeable speakers together under one roof with all the tackled and things that were it originally was strictly all fishing. I had some, some the best known fishermen in the country that most watched or listened to, had the most articles. And I could usually tell whether I'm getting conned or not by just reading what they're writing, whether they know what they're talking about. And I found out most of these, and I, I hate to say that, most of these outdoor writers learn from a guide. They fish with a guide or an outfitter so they don't go out and figure out how to do it themselves. Mm-hmm number of times people ask me, who's the best fisherman in the world? Because of all the people we have through ISA. And I said, there's no best fisherman in the world. If there was, it would be somebody that went to a place they'd never been before, fish for a fish they'd never seen before, and figure out how to catch them. That would be the best. Fishing is a mental game. You know, it really is. Physical, too. If you're fly fishing, you have to know how to cast and terminal tackle, good knots, be able to tie great knots, and uh, understand the game. And you understand the history of it. And I think the golden years of fly fishing, arguably, I think were 1970 through 1995. Because all the new tackle, all the fish that people have heard about, have been caught, you know, permit, billfish, all that. The great writers and people in the industry at that time, guys like Leon Chandler, and Schwebert, Dave Whitlock, Doug Swisher, Joe Brooks, those guys, Ted Trueblood. Those are the guys that really knew what they were doing. Yeah, suddenly you have the fisheries being healthy and the gear to be able to catch them. Yeah, one of the very best cold water fishermen I've ever met, and probably I would say if I had to, I'd say he's the best for steelhead and salmon and striped bass, was named Bill the Shad. Yeah. And Bill was an old friend. Bill, just before he passed, gave me a series of flies that he tied. He was really good. He's appeared in my show, you know, and I take him into Alaska, and he just was a great guy and really knowledgeable. And uh, those are the people I wanted. Mm-hmm. Guys like Hal Jansen, if you know who Hal is. Mm-hmm. Hal is super, super, super fisherman. Denny Rickards, guys like that. Uh, like these are all legendary names. Mm-hmm. Let's just go back to the first year that you started it. Mm-hmm. Were you working alone? Yeah. And did you hire on a good team? No. I had a young lady that was a friend of mine. She was kind of a secretary for me because I had to have somebody at the home office because I travel all the time and somebody could organize things. And Her name was Wendy Dame, and she was great. And then from there, I went to another gal named Madonna Zumbo, Madonna Johnson at the time. I could have never built ISC without her. What were your major obstacles that first year? People believing in what I was able to do. They said it wouldn't work. Everybody, including the industry, said, this isn't going to work. And I said, yes, it will. And so uh, that was the toughest, obviously. It took two or three years, and then everybody pretty much became believer. There were some people that just bad-mouthed the shows initially that wouldn't go, just to prove a point, they wouldn't go in. But that's okay. I went to the factories and got them in. How many people showed up the... The first year? Yeah. The first year was in Seattle. It was probably about 14,000 the first year. Over the space of four days? Five days. Five days. Yeah, which doesn't seem like a lot, but 
that's a small town. And all the other show guys were just big liars. They were saying, we draw, we draw 750,000. Yeah. My competitor here said, we draw 80,000 in uh, Portland. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm saying, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so I find, you know, I believed it. I believed those guys. So when I did the first one, I only drew 14,000. But, whoa, these guys are lying. Yeah. So uh, I've seen it, when I've been a vendor at a show and they're saying, oh, we bring in X amount of thousands of people. And I'm thinking, I, I've been at the show all weekend. There's no way you're bringing in that many just people. Lie. Yeah. You know, and that's one thing ISC never did. We had a standard thing with all of our employees. If you ever lie to a customer or you lie to an exhibitor, you no longer work here. If you even let them believe something you know is wrong, if you don't correct it, you don't work here. Wow. So, And they knew that I was serious about it because I will never let one of my sales guys lie to an exhibitor. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about the show. The show is still in existence. Yeah. It's been in existence since 1976. It's a long time, Ed. Yeah. When John and I were speaking earlier, he was saying that you you wanted the best, so you would pay thousands of dollars extra to put down carpet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really wanted the quality experience. Well, it also concrete walks. I'm, that's why my legs are so bad walking on concrete and all the others hunting and fishing. I got overweight. I just wanted people to be comfortable. You put carpet down, people are going to stay longer. And we probably had st- people staying longer at our show than any other show in the country. Oh. It was almost three hours. And three hours is a long, long time for a show. It is. You know, it's usually also, an hour, hour and ten minutes. There's also so much to look at. I've been to a lot of shows. I've been to all of them, almost. And I think yours is my favorite. Well, you didn't see ISC in the days. It <laughs> in your days. days. I wish you could have seen it when it was red hot. So tell me about it. Oh, it was just... Everybody, the industry itself, the show, the excitement through the air and the people talking, and the friendships, the camaraderie that was made. We kind of brought the world together. So you did a lot of, uh, obviously, traveling for the show. Were you oh, yeah. trying to find talent to bring in, mm-hmm. and, destinations? And new fisheries. Yeah. So that was important, get people involved in new fisheries. Ed, you were, you were like the internet, what the internet is today, all under one roof. Pretty much. Bringing everyone together. Mm-hmm. I was really enjoying reading the old advertisements from, I think I was reading one, it was 1980. The show was jam-packed, and you had an area where people could try out different float tubes, like a big mm-hmm. floating pond. Oh, yeah. There were all these sorts of areas where people could, and stations where people could try a new activity. Yeah, we had the, you know, the, the big giant aquarium. We were the first ones to build one of those. Well, Billy and Bobby Murray built one back in Texas, but ours was available. We had fly casting, how fly lines sink, how lures work, all that. And it was great. It was, you know, a 30-foot trailer, six feet deep. It would have cost a fortune, though. No, I figured out how to do it. And still I had a boat builder build it, and I found that from 3M, they had a new material called Lexon, and they only made it in quarter inch. So what I did is I glued five of them together, so that way the stress wouldn't water. blow everything out. The thing didn't leak. It was great. No kidding. Yeah, and I, I had a little problem with uh, filters, you know, make sure the fish stay alive, especially if you're under arc lights, you know, that comes down and kills the fish. So you have to understand that, and you have to make the chemicals in the water where the fish can survive, and they did. I started the first video fly tying theater. I brought live cameras in. We'd take a little tiny, say, a size 20 uh, track or something like that and blow it up look like an eagle. So we were the first with innovations way in advance anybody else. In your peak years, what would attendance be? 35, 40,000. Yeah, a lot of people. There were so many new friends made. 
you know, hanging out with each other and having dinner and things like that. Growing and seeing all that was what I really enjoyed. That's what my focus was. It was never about the money. It was more about bringing the world of fishing to the people in a way that they can understand it and enjoy it. But I also understand that you are a very talented fly fisher because I've read about you in, in a lot of books. I didn't know you as the ISE founder. I knew of you as a fly fishing celebrity. 242 species on the fly, I think I read, that you've caught. Something like that, yeah. You don't show up as a presenter once. I'm not a self-promoter. So you promoted everyone else, and not once in all those years did you ever put yourself on as a guest? Mm -mm. Ever. I was one of the first to catch all the bills. Not all the bills. I don't have a blue marlin. I've got white, striped, black. Uh, Atlantic Pacific sailfish on a fly. Never once did a program in that. But why not? It's just not me. I just I have a hard time talking about things I've done. I'd rather talk about... People ask me, what's your favorite thing to talk about? What am I going to do next? See, that's why getting old is not fun for me. Because there's nothing out. I'm not going to do anything. Well, what am I going to talk about? In those days, it was... Uh, I just was embarrassed to talk about myself. You know, I'd rather promote somebody else. Which is interesting because you are, and you didn't tell me this, but John has mentioned, you know, you're, you're an alpha male. And I definitely think you're charismatic. I mean, even when I walked in, I was like, oh, God, he's, he's way more present than I realized. Like, you're tall, you're handsome, you're well-spoken. Is there somebody standing behind me? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, you demand attention. Well, thank you. I would have thought with that sort of personality... That you would have wanted to be known and, and showboating, if you will. I didn't want to be known. I didn't want to be showboating. I just wanted to have respect, that's all. And I'm just, I've never been that way. I never will. That's not me. You don't like to look back. You like to look ahead. No, somebody catch you if you look back. Okay. It's what I'm going to do. Well, you were looking ahead even back then. I read something that you wrote in 1980 saying, we need people to be stewards of, of the sport. We, we need people to be advocates because they're going to care about our environment. Yeah. And you were you were advocates for women and children in the sport because I read that you had said the more numbers and the more people who fish and are outdoors are going to help us conserve this, you know, mm -hmm. preserve this. Yeah, I've always been very big on women and kids. But you saw that in the 80s. Yep. How do you feel now in 2008? I was 18. Oh, my God, 2018. <laughs> to, to see somebody like you makes my heart feel good. Oh, thank you. Just to see women so involved, you know, Kathy Beck, Wendy Gunn. Yeah. You know, they were protégés of mine. I've always tried to promote women. We did a program with Orvis, you know, with the casting for the women that had uh, breast cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a perfect, perfect exercise for it. And so I worked with Orvis and that. Orvis has been great. Was this the sort of thing that it was 365 days a year, or did you did you work six months and then take six months off? No, I worked every day. The only time I didn't work was when I'm fishing or hunting. I figured the average person has four and a half months a year off, counting weekends, and you know, right there you got 104 days, and then you've got all the different holidays, things like that. So I figured if I worked harder than anybody else and spent more time, I'd do better. So I was either working, hunting, or fishing. And I'd take my wife with me, most, darling, most around the world. Fishing was very serious with me. That, you know, I'm bipolar. That's the way I get out of manic. You know, manic, I was just a ball of fire. But I was in depression mood. The way I'd get out of it is go fishing. Because I'd be totally focused on fishing, and it was so much fun. You know, I have all the patience in the world when it comes to fishing, because it's a process of elimination. In real life, I have very little patience. Because, you know, why wait? They say, that now here, you know, my age, they say, Ed, you got to have patience. I said, for crying out loud, I'm 79 years old. I don't have time to be patient. Mm -hmm.
coming up, Ed and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to HMH Vices for making this episode possible. If you've been hoping to start tying tube flies this winter, HMH has got you covered. The HMH Universal Tube Fly Kit is an easy-to-use system of interchangeable tubes, tools, and techniques that lets you tie any style of floating or sinking tube fly for both freshwater and saltwater game fish. Plus, the DVD in this package gets you tying tube flies right away. There are far too many components to list, but I assure you, you will have them all. If you're looking for everything you need to get started, check out www.hmhvices.com. Tying tube flies has never been so easy. Ed, when did you meet Darlene? I met her, I was, the year I was uh, traveled eight months out of the year. And I was flying, and I think I flew in from St. Louis or someplace. And uh, my office was below the Black Angus restaurant, and I'd never been there, never went up, and all that, I just for whatever reason. Anyway, I was really hungry. I was so sick of airplane food, you couldn't believe it. So <laughs> I drove back, and I was going to go in the office, and it was probably about 1030 or something. My plane just got in, and I was hungry, so I went up to have, uh, have lunch at Black Angus. And this little girl come over and says, what are we going to have? And, you know, I have a good sense of humor. And I said, we? You're going to join me, are you? And she just started laughing. <laughs> and she was, I started talking to her, you know. I, I like to start conversations with people. And I never met anybody so innocent and so sweet and so nice. I, whoa. So uh, I started going up there for lunch, you know, and I always asked for her area. So I said, and I talked, and we just joked, you know, I'm flirting, but not, you know, not boy-girl flirting. I'm just, you know, just joking. How old were you at this point? Uh, I was 40, 42. Okay, so divorced in your 40s, or maybe not. Yeah, I was divorced, yeah. and I was, actually, was 44, come to think about it. Okay, fair enough. So, yeah, yeah you're still and, uh, a young, handsome man. She was 24. Man. She never said a swear word in her life. She Aww. was very religious. And she didn't have a life at all because this uh, hepatitis caused her liver to go bad. And her father didn't understand what it was. So she went two months without any doctor or anything like that. And by that time, it was too late. And uh, the liver was really bad. And they told her she was going to have a liver, have to have a liver transplant. And she didn't think it was possible. And so, uh, but like I say, she was so innocent, so sweet. And Richard Pryor was coming to town. Oh, wow. And she I, was joking, and she said, I'm going to go to the Richard Pryor concert. I'm sitting there, oh, my God. She has no idea what she's getting into. I mean, Richard Pryor was hilarious, but he was also, you know, pretty pretty rank. Vulgar, yeah. Yeah. And I said, oh. I said, you sure you want to do this? She says, well, I've never been in anything like this. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. If you don't mind, I'll take you. We'll stop and get some pizza, and I'll take you. Because if you want to leave, we'll leave. So we went and picked her up, and I had a Lotus Esprit, if you know what that is. It looked like a Ferrari real low sports car. Okay. And I had a BMW, too, and I thought, well, you know, I'll just take the sports car, you know, impress her a little bit. Yeah. So anyway, I go over to her place, and I, she wants to be immature. She, you know, she, her brains are shut down because of the hepatitis, but she was smart as a whip. She became a prodigy in computers. And uh, so I show up, and she's dressed to the nines. And uh, you know, I'm, I think I had a sport car or something like this. So I go up and get her, open the car, and, you know, it's sitting so low, it's hard to get in. I open it. She got in. She didn't say a word. I walked around and got in, almost getting ready to start the car. And I said, what do you think of the vehicle? Or what do you think of the car? And she said, oh, it's okay. 
I thought, I like this girl. <laughs> and so we went to have pizza, and then we we're going to go to the show. We left the pizza parlor at midnight. No. Yep. Oh. And we talked about everything. She explained to me that she wasn't going to live past 25. You know, she didn't think she was going to live at all because their liver was going really bad, and she was suffering then. I'm thinking, here is this young, beautiful lady. Oh, she's gor- like She is gorgeous. She was as beautiful on the inside as she was the outside. I- that's I'm looking her. at photos of her here. Yep, that's her. It's, it's, it model. Beautiful. Hmm? She looks like a model. She could have been. She was, I mean, really beautiful. And uh, I thought a great deal about it. And uh, we talked, about, you know, and she didn't think she was going to live. And I'm thinking, you know, this is a terrible thing. How can anybody this sweet, this nice not have a life? I can give her a life. But, uh, you know, I'm certainly not interested in a boyfriend-girlfriend type thing. You know, she's just a nice person, and I like her as a friend. So I, we started going out. You know, I'd take her to dinner and, you know, things that she never thought she'd do, you know, nice places and meet interesting people. So one night, one thing led to another. I'm thinking, now, this and the young girls are for a young man. And I started thinking about all the downside, you know, what people would think of her, you know, and think of me. Here, I got a trophy wife. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't ever want her to go through that and have to put up with that kind of stuff. But she could never have any children. You know, she was no way she could ever get pregnant. If she couldn't have it, she'd kill her. You know, she'd die. And uh, I started researching livers. And I found out from Pennsylvania, where they first started doing it, their top guys went to Dallas. The guy that did Mickey Mammals, his liver, he, they had pretty good success. They run about 85%. So I started looking into it and I know that she didn't have the money but I had you know good insurance and I had plenty of cash in those days then I had to move my company from Oregon to get out of that unitary tax crap that they put on and so I moved to Vancouver and I told her I was going to move and she started crying I mean just heartbreak and I said well no that's not going to happen I said would you like to come up with me and she said yes I would I said okay I'll tell you what we'll come up we'll live together for a year at the end of that year, if you're satisfied and I'm satisfied, we'll get married. I'll make sure you're taken care of for the rest of your life. I'll never let anything hurt you. Aww. So uh, she quit crying, and she moved up, and then I fell deeply, deeply in love with her. I mean, she was the most important person in the entire world for me. I'd already lost my grandfather, you know. And uh, I'm thinking, yeah. I'm going to put up a lot of crap. A lot of people are going to think bad things. You know, they don't understand. There's two sides of the story. I wanted to give her a life, and I gave her a life, took her all over the world. Every place that was safe, I'd take her. And every day, we got closer and closer. We went 26 years, never had a fight or an argument. I don't think there was a single day that I can remember that I didn't tell her I loved her, or she didn't tell me, you know. Even if I was in Australia or some damn place, I always called her on a cell phone or, you know, a sat phone. It was just made me the happiest I've ever been in my life. You're totally going to make me cry. Sorry. Well, I'll tell you, knowing, you know, she came out of the liver transplant. And she made it okay through, but the darnest thing, if you'd like to hear the story, I'll tell you what happened. It's quite a story. Well, uh, she was up in Alaska with me. She started bleeding inside and didn't know what was the matter. So we got her out and got her home, and the doctors told me that, she can't go much longer. She's going to pass if we don't get her liver. And uh, I said, well, let's go for it. And they said, well, 
you know, she's really tough. She's got a small liver and she's got this special kind of blood. And it's going to be hard to find. And you got to go through all this rigmarole, you know, who's who's next and that kind of stuff. So uh, I remember she went through a 14-hour operation the night before, an experimental operation, because you can't do a bypass with the liver. You can have a heart and all that, but liver, none. So they did this experimental surgery, a guy by the name of Dr. Richard Crass, and he did this operation and kept her alive, and she said, only maybe 48 hours she's gonna live. So we went to Dallas to get the liver, and uh, got there, and they said, we found, we think we found a liver. It's in Klamath Falls, Oregon, Jellicklin, a little Indian girl, has small liver, right blood, she got killed in a car wreck. So in those days, you had, I think it was 14 hours to take out a liver, to put a new one in. And by the time they got back and forth, the time would run out. So they had to start taking Darlene's liver out as soon as the plane took off. And they had this kind of a bypass and they figured out how to do with this experimental operation, keep her alive. So if anything happened, you know, the liver didn't match or plane got delayed or whatever, it would've been over with. And I thought about the alternative. There was no alternative. So I said, go ahead. And I started taking the liver out. The guy left to retrieve the liver, and I was waiting and waiting and waiting. I was, you know, I hadn't been asleep for like 48 hours, and I was just rummy. You know, I'm not in the best mood in the world. And all of a sudden, I'm in the waiting room, and they have this uh, this gal that works between the uh, with with the families to let them know what's going on, because they give you good communication, so you're not sitting there wondering what the heck's going on. They said we the liver's a match, and they're coming back now. It's going to be close, but she, you know, we give her a go. They got back, and then they said they weren't going to do the operation unless they did a brain scan. They had to put a sensor to find out if she brain dead, and she wasn't. Her brain seemed like it was okay. So they did the operation. It was like, I don't know how many hours. But uh, the next day, I remember they said, she's still alive. She probably won't wake up for three or four days, and you probably won't be able to see her for that time. And I said, I want to see her as human and as quick as possible. So they said, well, come tomorrow at 7 o'clock in the morning, and you can see her for a few minutes. So I was down there at 7. I went over, and I looked at her, and oh, gosh, you know, she went from 108 pounds to 88 pounds in just a short period of time. And when I leaned down, I kissed her in the cheek, and I said, sweetheart, you're okay. You've got a brand-new liver. You're going to be fine. And all of a sudden, she goes, I don't know, oh my God, she died, you know, with the eyes opening. And then she tried to focus. And I'm sitting there, whoa! And the nurse was there. I said, nurse, she's awake. Said, what? She's awake. So the nurse came over and says, ask her something she says say no to. And I said, she used to call me her bear. And I said, who am I? Am I your uncle? No. Am I your father? Am I your bear? Mm-hmm. I couldn't, tears started to come out of my eyes. And I said, real smart, I said, hey, sweetheart, you know where you're at? I think she said, yeah, fool, I'm in a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're in Dallas, Texas, you have a brand new liver, and you're going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. You know, assuming, I didn't know what it was or not, but anyway, she didn't recover. I, I brought a cot in there, and I stayed there, and I had to take her to the bathroom. The nurses were terrible. So I'd feed her, take her to the bathroom, and she was... In a, not, not hysterical, but she just didn't know where she had. She did, didn't want to recover, and that's the way I felt in a couple of days. And I'm sitting there one morning, you know, on the spring mattress, spring thing. I mean, it's the worst sleeping I've ever done, but I wasn't going to leave her. And uh, the door flew open, and this big guy came roaring in. 
and I come out of that chair about 600 miles an hour. Who is this person? I don't know what the hell is going on. And he says, settle down, big fella, settle down. I want to talk to your wife. And I says, who the hell are you and what do you want? And he says, trust me. He walked over. He says, hi, little missy. I, mean, I can't remember the guy's name. I wish I could. And he says, I want you to know who I am. I'm the world's oldest living liver transplant recipient. And Darlene looked at her. I remember that. And he talked to her for a few minutes. And I'm sitting there thinking, hmm. And then he finally said, you know, that's enough. And he left. And I said, thank you very much, very much. And I walked back over to Darlene. She's still awake. And, like that, and she said, sweetheart, will you take me for a walk? Hmm. And I said, you bet. So you got those stand things, you know, with all that drip, drip, you know. So I took her for a walk. And she, you know, I had her underneath her, you know, my arms around her so she wouldn't fall down. She was still weak as hell. So we went for this little walk. And she, that again that evening, she said, sweetheart, will you take me for a walk? And I said, sure, let's do it. So from that time on, when that guy came in and she realized that she wasn't going to die, everything could be okay. Because, I mean, you know, when you go through a liver transplant, I mean, that tears the hell out of you. She had scars that she couldn't believe. So she started coming out of it. This hospital is not in the best district in Dallas. There's all kinds of shootings and crap going on. So we had this apartment, and I flew back to get a car, drove all the way back 36 hours from Eugene to Dallas. That's fast. And... uh we had her in the apartment, and uh, I brought her home. I laid her down in bed, and I got next to her. And she says, do my scars bother you? I said, mm. what scars? Yeah. <laughs> you know, she could have lost her face or whatever. It wouldn't make any difference to me. I loved her the way she was. Before we get caught up to today, what happened with ISE? When did you hand the reins over, and why? Well, I got to a point where Darlene was starting to get real ill again. She wasn't doing good, and uh, my health had failed. I just wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. I didn't want the hassles of running the shows and things like that. And I got tired of all the bureaucracy dealing with city councils and county commissioners and people with their hands out. I just got tired of it. So uh, this one guy, he ran a Christmas gift fair, kind of a home show thing, and he talked to me, he wanted to buy it. And I made a deal with him. I said, okay, I'll sell it to you, but you're gonna have to keep Rick and you're gonna have to John Kirk you got to make sure those guys still have jobs. So he wrote, he wrote the contract up, and that was in it. So I sold it. And you are still sharp as a tack. I wouldn't say that. Well, you No, I'm, I've lost a lot. I really think, have. You think? Yeah, memory. You know, I can't articulate. I can't grab the words I once did. You know, it's, my long-term memory is still really good. My short-term is i got to put my name up backwards in the mirror so I know who I am, am in the morning. Can you get out? And go fishing and hunting? Do I still go out? Mm. No. I'm, first of all, I can't see the tie uh, knot. I can't tie my fly in. I can't even see it, darn thing. And uh, if I can't do it right, I can still cast really well, really well. I won a FFF casting deal one time, you know, all around. And, and I could be up there with the, the good guys. I didn't work as hard as Steve or Chris or those guys, but I could still... You know, I never embarrassed myself, and there's not too many people who could throw better than I could. I can throw, you know, probably 80 to 90 feet sitting down. I don't know if I can still throw 100, but I used to be able to with a 508. So John was saying, does John take you out? Can they take you fishing in a boat or something? Oh, I guess, yeah, I could. But like I say, if I can't do it right, I really have a problem. I just I don't want to go in and not give the fish what it deserves. You know, I don't want to fight a fish till it's so tired that it can't live anymore. 
Is that why you were so big on the IGFA? I know I know that you hold several IGFA records. Mm-hmm. So I just be at the right place at the right time. Do you feel that your life has been fulfilled? Do you feel fulfilled? Fulfilled? Hmm. Let me put it this way. April, I didn't miss anything. I mean, I've had quite a ride, really quite a ride. So I look back on it, and, you know, it's amazing to me what I was able to accomplish, consider where I started, where I ended up. It was all possible by great friends and just a thirst of knowledge. I want to know things, and I love exploring new places, going there and meeting the people, seeing how other people live. You know, that's really important to me. So, you know, I didn't miss anything hunting or fishing. What am I going to do now that would surpass anything I've done? Just to go out is like going out and catching a bluegill. You know, I've done it. doesn't really turn my motor. You know, it doesn't excite me. It doesn't. And I remember the first time I cast to a big tarpon, the first time I cast to a billfish, or the first time I threw into a feeding frenzy of yellowfin tuna. I'm sitting there, do I really want to do this? <laughs> Whoa, this is, this is wild stuff. And, uh, you know, you learn after a while how to beat these fish. I went through a 32-stripe marlin before I finally landed one. Oh, I lost them every way you could think of. I had boats cut me off. I only broke just a few times. The hook pulled it out. Just one thing after another. I finally, uh, believe it or not, I run out of line class. You know, I had, uh, I was using 16. And uh, the guy I was fishing with in his boat, he had a roll of old monofilament. And we still, we had these schools of fish. You've got to see, they were feeding on sardines or bait. These big schools, you'd get, you'd get a bait ball the size of a railway car. In the afternoon, it'd be the size of a garbage can. And all you had to do is make a cast in, bring it out with a streamer. And as soon as it got outside the bait ball, you got hit. And you see everything that's happening. It was all side fishing. Oh. Anyway, so we still have these fish here. And I'm thinking, I haven't landed one. It's my last day. I said, you got some leader? And he says, I got some, Ed, but it's real old. I don't know what it is. I looked at it. I don't. It didn't even have a name. It was just a big spool. Like I just pulled it. I mean, it broke just right away, like three or four pounds. I mean, just rotten. I kept pulling out, pulling out, pulling out. I finally got to where, you know, it felt like maybe, I don't know, six, eight-pound test. And I figured, well, what the hell, I'll give it a go. That was as strong as it's going to get. So I tied up a bimini and put the shock tippet on. Put the fly on, made the cast, and here comes this 88-pounder. Came in and grabbed my fly. I fought it for 45 minutes. Finally, it started trying to lift up, and I turned it up in its backside and came over here. The guy reached, had a little hand gaff. And the first one, I had the very first striped marlin right to the side of the boat, and they couldn't gaff it. And the guy wouldn't touch it. He was afraid to. I could have reached down and built it. And the second one was about the same. And then from then on, it just got worse. I mean, every way you could lose one. Anyway, the thing turned over, and this guy gaffed and hit in the belly, opened up the belly, and I probably 10, 20 pounds of innards fell out. But I grabbed a bill and threw it in the boat, and that was it. I got my first strike, and I was just pumped. Well, I had a wahoo that was uh, would have still been a world record. I had it beat totally. It was right alongside the boat. It was probably... My guess was in the 80s, 90-pound. That was a huge, huge fish. Huge. And I'm sitting there, and John Barrett, you know, had that TV program, Fly Fish in the World. He, he and his wife were doing a, the film on the boat. Wendy Gunn had another one up in front. So he, John says, will you take this up? And both of you guys, you know, have this, the fish. And I looked at and in the fly, I had double, you know, two hooks, and, and they were hooked really good. I, I could see it. it nothing was going to come back. I, and the fish would beat. I said, hmm, okay. So I start dragging up, and all of a sudden, here it goes. And I look down, I can't figure out what the hell's going on. Fish takes off, and I see this big 
cloud, a big, looked like a big black whale. And away it went. I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. It gets out about 75 yards, and here's this big stellar sea lion with my wahoo in its mouth. Uh. I got the head of the wahoo back. That was all. It had eaten the rest of it. It just skinned it. Anyway, this head was gigantic. And I compared it to the, my other world record. It wasn't even close. This wing was huge. So I declared declared war on stellar sea lions. <laughs> Didn't like those things. Still don't. I don't see any redeeming value in the darn things. Anyway, there's long-range trips or something. Did you start that? Yeah. Can you tell me about that boat, that charter that you put together? Yeah. We took the Shogun and the Royal Star. And we put 16 people in, and we went out for 14 days. Was this part of ISE? Yeah, it was ISE-sponsored. I paid for a lot of it, but everybody else paid too. But what I wanted to do was I wanted to show people there's ways to catch these exotic fish you hear about, you never see, and the women with, like wahoo, yellowfin tuna, all this kind of stuff. You just don't normally go fishing for them. But I figured this way we could do it. And I went on a, I went on a, a trip just to see what it was like, see if it was doable. It was one of the best trips they ever had for big fish. They took like five or six fish over 300 pounds. And a 50-pound yellowfin, if you can beat one on a fly, I got one 52 pounds, darn near kill me. And, you know, I fought a lot of fish, but they are so strong, you cannot believe it. The guys think they can catch 100. If you're in shallow water, you might be able to do something, but out there you're not. A 50-pounder is going to tear you a brand new rear end. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Watching these guys for the first time hook into those things. <laughs> Dave Whitlock. <laughs> Dave was down, he had a 10 weight rod. I, he, uh, he, you know, he likes light stuff. And I told Dave, I said, you're not going to do too well with that. He said, oh, I can do this. So anyway, we got this yellowfin too, and Dave made a cast about a 30 pound yellowfin, and away it went. And it spooled him, and just shoo. <laughs> I never, never forget the look in his face. Like, what have I got on here? I mean, it just disappeared and broke him off. Ed, is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? What I'd like to see is I'd like to see more communicators in fly fishing. But one thing I learned with ISA, you know what an expert is? An expert fisherman? What? Somebody 100 miles from home with a slideshow. <laughs> Some of the people will tell the wildest stories you ever heard. And there's too many people like that. I don't want to see that. I want to see people tell the truth. They don't have to lie. Do you think that social media and the internet today keeps people honest? No. Because you get called out pretty fast. You know, you can do all kinds of things. You know, you can say you did this. Who's going to prove you wrong unless you got a picture? The people that are truthful and tell you the truth that are honest, those are the people I care about. And I think we need to get you back out there. That's what? I think we need to get you back out there. Well, seventy nine is still really young. Not for me. I got the, I got the mind of a thirty year old and the body of a hundred and thirty year old. <laughs> but the man can cast. I can still cast. Well, let's get you out there. Well, I'm game. Let's do it one of these days. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored online. Thank you so much. 